it's hard to believe this is the beginning of the last week of this study. I hope you take time to linger on some of the lessons that we've already looked at. And part of your lesson this week will be to think about those things. So take maybe a little bit of extra time this week. Start a little bit earlier um, to be able to look back and reflect on the ways that you've seen faith illustrated in the lives of the people that we've read about in Hebrews 11. And then apply that to your life. How have you seen your faith grow? How have you seen your faith developed um, in a way that maybe you hadn't expected through this study and through the wonderful conversations at our table? You know, when we stand up here or sit up here and share with you, we're not the main course. We're just the appetizer. The main course is the discussions at your table. That's the good stuff. What teaching up front is meant to do is to whet your appetites for the main course. Really working through these lessons together, going through these questions and sharing our insights and our vantage points. Um, so have fun luxuriating in that, and I hope that today I will whet your appetite for that. So last week, <clears throat> we looked at Abraham's test of faith, and in the end, he chose to trust God. He lived a life trusting God. This week, we'll talk about the choices that are shaped by faith and how this differs from choices we make without faith and the consequences of both. Let's look at a timeline between Abraham and Moses. There are seven generations between Abraham and Moses. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Levi, Kohath, Amram, and Moses. There were 20 generations between Adam and Abraham, seven between Abraham and Moses. The nation of Israel is established through 12 sons of Jacob, including Joseph. Now, Joseph plays a pivotal role in Israel being able to become inhabitants in the land of Egypt. If you're unfamiliar with that story, please ask your table leader, and they'll point you in the right direction. The story in Genesis is really fascinating. Joseph has many twists and turns to his life, many that seem inevitably horrible and end up wonderfully. And as a result, uh, the nation of Israel finds refuge in uh, Egypt at the, uh, in the midst of a huge famine. Israel is in Egypt for roughly 430 years. And they are mistreated in Egypt, but not initially. In fact, Joseph's father, Jacob, was not mistreated. He was there for about 30 years. The pharaoh that was in power knew Joseph, knew the history of um, Joseph's family, and really respected the Hebrews. But as things happen, as regimes change, as, as pharaohs change, opinions change, and what ended up happening was the nation of Israel grew to be huge. And the 
current pharaoh in our timeline today, in our story, became pretty intimidated by the number of Hebrews, the, the fact that they were so large and they were so productive. And I wonder if he even noticed that maybe there was favor on these people, that he felt intimidated by that. Rather than embracing it, he decided he needed to strong arm them into seeing him as their authority. And eventually they become enslaved and they become very mistreated. Well, today's story focuses on the life of Moses and the choices he and his parents make. When we look back at great people of faith, we sometimes overlook the heritage of faith within that person's family. Think about Billy Cram. What a wonderful man of faith he was. Don't you wonder what his childhood might have been like? Maybe you already know. Maybe you read his biography. Some people of faith come from a heritage of faith that caused them and helped them to be the people of faith that they became. I want to really give honor to Moses' parents today. If you looked at the beginning of our uh, passage, it talks about this and the choices that they made. First, his parents make a choice to go against Pharaoh's edict. Pharaoh at that time was so uh, horrible that he decided it wasn't just enough to enslave the people of Israel, but he decided that every male baby would have to die of the Hebrews. And so the, initially the midwives were told that if a baby boy was born, they were to let it die. Well, they didn't like that very much, and so they told Pharaoh, you know, these Hebrew women are so vigorous, they give birth just like that. And the babies are born before we even get there, and we don't have a chance to let them die. And Pharaoh kind of caught on to that. So he ended up ordering that these babies would be killed. Moses' parents decide to go against this edict. Now think about who Moses' parents were and who Pharaoh was. Moses' parents were Hebrews. They were slaves. What kind of status did they have in this uh, atmosphere, in this culture? And they decided to go against the Pharaoh's edict. They risked not only their son's life, but their own as well. Notice that Hebrews 11.23 says, By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw that he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. What stands out to you in that sentence? Me too. That's exactly what popped out at me. They were not afraid. What gives us that ability to not be afraid in a situation where logic and reasoning says, run screaming from the room? Three months. Can you imagine their lives during that time? And I like the fact that this passage says both his parents, not just his mom. If you go back to the story in Genesis, there's a lot of scriptures about his relationship with his mother and his mom's involvement in his uh, salvation and saving him from this edict. But I like the fact that both are regarded here. Don't you think it had to be a mutually um, designed course of action between this husband and wife? 
I like the fact that in the NIV it says they noticed that Moses was not an ordinary child. In the New Revised Standard, in some of the other translations, it says that they noticed that Moses was beautiful. Well, this is not to say that they believed that an ordinary or an ordinary-looking son deserved to die. Doesn't every parent think that their baby is beautiful? What else might have inspired them? I wonder if prayer had an impact. How might God have framed their perspectives to lead them towards their brave decision? God has a way of helping us overcome our fear when facing dire situations. For Moses' parents, God used the extraordinary nature of Moses or their perception of his exceptional qualities as an inspiration to consider an alternative to Pharaoh's edict. Don't you wonder what they might have heard from from God in prayer? This child will live and not die. I shared that a few weeks ago. That was something God told me when I was pregnant with my daughter after having lost two sons. And that was exactly what I needed to hear to give me faith and not to give in to the fear that was crouching at my door. This child will live and not die. I wonder if Moses' parents heard the same thing. Time invested in prayer on someone's behalf has both temporal and eternal effects. And that last part, they were not afraid of the king's edict. What a powerful statement. What must their faith have been like to choose defiance in the face of a powerful earthly authority bent on destroying their nation? Remember last week we talked about being all in with God to the point where we can say, no matter what, I trust God. Were Moses' parents all in with God? So Moses is saved. Moses actually is brought up right under the Pharaoh's nose as the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter. If this is a new story to you, please go back and look at the scriptures from Genesis that I put in your lesson today. Um, and you might even want to read them at your table if it's a new uh, a story to you that you hadn't heard before. It's an amazing story of being saved from the king's edict. Moses ends up in the palace being raised as Pharaoh's adopted grandson. His name Moses is actually from a Hebrew word that means drawn out. If you were here, I think it was a couple of years ago, Daniela and I wrote a study called What's in a Name? Moses, a Man Drawn. And we talked about the meaning of our names and how God uses those. Well, Moses was literally drawn out of the waters of the Nile when his mother put him in a little basket and released him, really trusting God with her son's future. And who found him? Pharaoh's daughter. And at that moment, Moses' older sister had been following and looking and, and seeing what was happening to her little brother. The pharaoh uh, had a daughter. She was not a mother, and she needed a wet nurse. She needed someone to nurse Moses. And guess who got nominated? Moses' mom, because his sister was there. And she said, I know someone. And so as a result, she got to nurse 
Moses. And remember last week we talked about four to five years being the cultural norm. So he had four to five years with his mother, additionally beyond just being born there. Experts agree that the first five years are the most important in a child's development. They learn appropriate behaviors. They learn boundaries. They learn empathy. They learn social skills. And in Moses' case, they learn heritage. Isn't it interesting that Moses lived in Pharaoh's household? He had a name that was drawn from the Hebrews. What do you suppose allowed him to stay there. I wonder if God used Pharaoh's love for his own daughter to allow her to raise this child. But nevertheless, he was embraced, and he was encouraged to become a part of that family. During these formative years that Moses spent with his mother, I believe she played an essential role in helping to form Moses into the person he was to become. Are there ways that you have seen yourself being used in the lives of a little one, whether it be your own children or some other children that maybe came across your path? Maybe in the first five years of their lives, do you notice, have you noticed anything that you might have imparted to them that you might see coming out in their lives today? Well, many of you know I'm a musician, and I write music, and I love writing songs. And when my daughter, Jenica, was little, she sometimes suffered with nightmares. And I just decided to write a little song for her. And it went like this. Don't be afraid. Jesus is here. And he will give you sweet dreams. No yucky bad dreams. Only happy sweet dreams for Janica. And I would sing that to her before she'd go to sleep at night. And she loved that. Or if she woke up in the middle of the night, I would sing it to her. And that was something God had just put in me. That was my way of comforting and encouraging my daughter. How does God use you to comfort and encourage others? I love the fact that he makes us exactly the way we are. He knows exactly the best way for us to be the best part of ourselves we can be in imparting his love to others. When Jenica went off to college, what a milestone I thought, what can I possibly give her? I know that that cake has been baked, and it's out of the oven, and we're frosting it, and she's on her own, right? Well, God reminded me of that song. And so I went to Shutterfly, which is a great little website that allows you to put books together with pictures. And I I know this was God's inspiration to me because I never would have thought of this on my own. Um, I love that when that happens and you look back on it and you go, that was not me, that was God. But I made a little book for her with pictures of some of her very favorite places, both at home and on our vacations, things that she could remember. And then the words to the book were the words to the song. And so every page had a lyric, don't be afraid. 
Jesus is here. And he will give you sweet dreams. No yucky bad dreams. Only happy sweet dreams for Jenica. And I wrapped it up and I gave it to her when we dropped her off at her dormitory and I, my lip was quivering and my voice was, was, cho- was choking. I said, open this up tonight when you're in your bed, right before you go to sleep. And she did. And I was able to release her, knowing that I had given her something that she could hold on to, that would bear fruit in her life. I knew it already had, and it was something that she could carry on into the future. What do you think Moses might have heard from his mom? Did she sing to him? Did she teach him scriptures? Did she make up stories about his family heritage? What do you think Moses might have thought of at night in Pharaoh's palace? Did some of those words come back to him? Well, over the course of time, Moses comes to a pivotal decision. And he's about 40 years old when this happens. Our, our scripture out of Hebrews 11, 24 to 26 says, By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. Moses had grown. I think that's important. He had 40 years for all of these beautiful things that his mother might have instilled in him to germinate and grow and bear fruit. Think about what Moses turned away from. A life of privilege, stature, wealth, luxury, familiarity. That in itself is hard to do, isn't it? Think about what he turned towards. Oppression mistreatment, poverty, hardship. You know, if Moses' choice had been based purely on human reasoning and logic alone, what would he have settled for? Do you think he still would have made the same decision? Consider the consequences of such a choice. For Moses, he would remain Pharaoh's grandson if he chose to stay, enjoying a life of opulent notoriety for the people of Israel. Uh, for the, I'm sorry, opulent notoriety, but for the people of Israel, they would have a continuation of their misery with no visible end in sight. Our passage says that Moses was also turning away from the fleeting pleasures of sin. It's interesting that the word pleasure is there, isn't it? There is a point at which we can enjoy sin. But then there's also the word fleeting. I look at it this way. If you were hungry, which of these two foods would you rather eat, bubble gum or real food? Settling for the fleeting pleasures of sin is like chewing bubblegum when you're hungry. It may taste good, feels good to chew it, but what's the problem? It doesn't get to the gut. It doesn't nourish. 
What would happen if we tried to exist on bubblegum alone? We would starve. Have you ever experienced that? Where you're starving for God and you turn to something else instead. What's your bubblegum? After the flavor of bubblegum is worn off and our stomachs are still gurgling with hunger, it's time to turn to real food. Now, Moses may have been turning towards oppression, towards mistreatment, towards infamy. But he realized that his true source of life was not in the opulence of Pharaoh's palace, but with God. And that's really what he was turning towards. Wouldn't you love to know how his early relationship with his parents helped him to arrive at this conclusion? What kinds of seeds of faith did his parents sow in his early years that 40 years later are now bearing fruit? Faith allowed Moses to gain the same perspective that Abraham and Sarah had. Moses, in a sense, was like Abraham in that he saw himself as being a sojourner, a temporary resident in Pharaoh's world. And he was ready to launch out into a new world with God. He had an idea of what that might look like, but he really believed and trusted that God's plan was better than anything Pharaoh's world might have had to offer. Moses' faith was able to help him make this choice to turn away from the bubblegum, if you will. Our passage today said that Moses regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt. It's interesting that he uses that word Christ. Now remember, when is this book of Hebrews that we've been studying being written? In the first century, isn't it? And who's it being written to? The early church in Jerusalem, specifically Hebrew believers. So the story of Moses was a story that was familiar to them. And the word Christ also means Messiah. Do you know there are some people that believe that that word Moses not just doesn't mean drawn out. It can also mean deliverer in certain contexts. So in a sense, Moses represented the deliverance of the people of Israel and God's plan to deliver them out of slavery. There was something endemic in the culture of Israel that was looking forward to Messiah, looking forward to God's rescuing and God's fulfillment of his plans for them. And so, you know, God doesn't exist on a linear timeline, which kind of twists your brain a little bit, doesn't it? Anybody ever read C.S. Lewis? He has some amazing things to say about this and talks about how he thinks there is evidence that we were created to live in eternity with God. And I thought it was a little amusing that one of the reasons he believes this is because we often have a problem with punctuality. And he pointed to animals. They're never late. They're meant to live in a temporal time. We're actually created for relationship with God that will last into eternity. And there's something about us that chafes at the idea of having to stay with the schedule. Well, part of that's just bubblegum, 
right? Part of it is laziness. Part of it is fill in the blank. Part of it is staying up too late the night before, and I don't want to get up as early as I have to, and I'm going to be late. But part of it, too, is there's, I think, something in us that's like a little homing beacon to God that just kind of instinctively knows we were created for something more than just this world. I think for the writer of Hebrews to use the word Christ here is important because he's talking about those seeds being planted even back in Moses' time of seeing God as deliverer. And he used the word Christ for the first century Hebrews to really understand this because that was something they had lived through. That was something they had firsthand knowledge of. Jesus came, he died, he rose, and he revolutionized the world. Um, One theologian says that when Jesus came, heaven invaded earth, and suddenly the temporal also exists with the eternal simultaneously. It's one of those brain-twisting things we won't completely get until we enter eternity. But I think that's worth noting. So in week four, we learned that perspective means the capacity to view things in their true relations or relative importance. And I think that that's what was happening with Moses here. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt. I think he gleaned that same byproduct of faith that Abraham did. Moses got it. Abraham and Sarah got it. Let's get it too. Regarding disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt means Moses tapped into a different value system. Jesus says in Matthew 6, verses 19 through 21, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Do you see the connection here between Jesus' words and Moses' value system? Where was Moses' heart residing? Not with Pharaoh, not with Egypt, but with God. What fills your treasure trove? and Where does it reside? Heaven invaded Moses' life. It permeated his life. It helped him to walk in faith, seeing God who is unseen through the eyes of faith. Moses was looking ahead to his reward. So what was Moses' reward? Notice it says he disregarded, he regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ. Is it possible that the reward Moses was looking forward to was God himself? A life that would extend far beyond this earthly one and into eternity? Surely this was worth far more than all the treasures in Egypt. Say this with me. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. 
Moses was confidently hopeful in the future God had for him. Although he did not see his future fully this side of eternity, he held fast to the assurance of its existence because of his choice to live by faith. Last week, we talked about the concept of bearing fruit as part of a life of living, uh, living a life of faith in God. We looked at Jesus' words to his followers, and I want to read that again for you out of John chapter 15, verses 4 and 5. It says, Jesus is talking to his followers, remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me? Jesus is talking about him being the vine, and we are the branches connected to that vine. We receive our nutrients and our nourishment and the real food, not the bubblegum, from his um, abiding relationship with us. We remain in him, and he remains in us. Moses chose to stay connected to God, the vine to turn away from his former life and towards the new life God had for him. And as a result, the nation of Israel's future was radically changed from slavery in Egypt to freedom in the promised land. That can happen for us too. Moses' decision to follow the future God had for him bore amazing fruit. Read about the ways Moses bore fruit for God in the book of Exodus, if you've never read it. Take the time to read it. It's far too too beautiful for me to try to just touch on today, but it's well worth a read. Maybe this summer. Remember, living a life of faith in God is a two-way street. Jesus may tell his followers to remain in him, but he also remains in us. Take a look at what God says to us out of Isaiah 54. 10. For the mountains may move and the hills disappear, but even then my faithful love for you will remain. Do you see evidence of God's faithful love in your life today? How can understanding God's love at a deeper level cause you to make wise decisions? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you know us so well, that you place us exactly where you want us to be in the timeline of your plan for us. Thank you for the future and the hope that you have for us. Thank you that your love remains in us. I pray that you'd help us to understand this at a deeper level today. I pray that you would help us to grow in our faith uh, so that we can make decisions based on your plans for us and to trust that those plans are better than anything we could possibly devise under our own strength. Thank you for your love and your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.